0: Hi, I'm co-host Lois Donkwa, and this is the 100 Alumni Voices Podcast, stories that inspire where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Nichelle Bose, Ed.D. in Education, and current Vice Provost of Student Affairs at the Relay Graduate School of Education. Hi, Nichelle. Hi, Lois. So, how are you today? I am doing well. Today is the first day of our winter break, so oh. I'm doing very well. <laughs> that's, that's super exciting. It's not the first day of our winter break, but I'm acting like it is, which means I too am doing very well. (laughs) So I think my first question for you is, um, I want to learn more about what your um, doctoral studies were like, what drew you to get an EDD in education, and
1: yeah, why? Great question. So I always wanted to have a terminal degree, but I have two master's degrees, Um, and as you can imagine, that took four years, five years of my life that I knew I was not going to be able to commit another five to seven years for a traditional PhD program, and on top of which, I'm more of a practitioner. I love research, and I love data but I love to actually take it in the moment and do something about it, right? Um, And so actually the EDD turned out to be the best program for me because I was able to do that research, flex those skills, gather that data, and in real time use that to solve a problem that I was having in that particular moment. Um, And so what drew me to it? Relay Graduate School is a relatively new um, IHE. I think we've been around for like 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so we're finding our way um, with a lot of things. And in the past, our campuses used to be decentralized, meaning you're in a particular location and you decide how you want to engage with your students, how you want to support your students. You know, um, the curriculum was all standardized. But everything else was pretty much determined by whoever that campus leader was. And I started noticing that although our assessments aren't paper, pencil, they're not tests, they're not long papers that, you know, we write um, in our programs, they're more performance based, right? Like you stand up, you practice something that you're being taught, and then you go and you apply it in your classroom and you film yourself doing that with your K-12 students and you submit that as an assessment. And so what I started noticing was that my black and brown males were being outperformed by their other counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand why, like, why was this happening? Because it wasn't, it wasn't an academic thing, obviously, because it wasn't paper pencil. It wasn't testing aptitude. It was testing your application of a particular set of skills And simultaneously as they're submitting these assessments, they're being observed in the classroom. So we know they're doing well in their classrooms. Why are they failing on assessments? Um, And so that's what drew me to um, my program, right? Because I wanted to answer that question. Um, And I thought I was gonna find that, you know, there were different ways that I needed to, to support my black and brown male students. And what I found is that institutions very often invite a diverse candidate pool into their institution to learn, Mm -hmm. but very rarely change their systems, policies, practices to meet the needs of that diverse student body. And so the result of my doctoral program was the creation of an advisement and management model that allowed the institution to expand to meet the needs of those students. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. That's very, it's funny because I've had a couple of these conversations and sometimes the person is speaking a language I do not understand. It's just in terms of their topic area. It sounds like you're speaking my language and applying it to education. So. I'm tracking, and this is exciting for me. I'm very much a a practitioner myself, but then also really interested in using an understanding of research to apply to things in practice. So I guess it almost sounds like you, you kind of incorporated the experiences that you were already having into how you approached your doctoral studies. But I guess how did that inform how you responded to maybe challenges you had or when you were thinking about what you wanted to do after um, pursuing your EDD? So oddly enough, actually, um, some of
1: my experiences at Hopkins reinforced what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do for my EDD. One of the things that I always sing, I mean, what I wanted, sorry, what I wanted to do post my EDD. One of the things I always Praise Hopkins for is the EDD program, and um, it's very—it's an applied dissertation. So, from the moment you begin the program, you have begun working on your dissertation, right? There's not that you take several years of academic classes and then you're on your own to write your dissertation. From the day you walk in the door, everything you're, every class you're taking is in some way related to developing that dissertation and it was super similar to the way that relay plans its curriculum and so it felt like a natural right fit for me the thing that was still absent for me as a student was the thing that i noticed that was absent what you know for my students that the institution did not expand itself to figure out like hey we're inviting this working cohort of folks right like mm-hmm. all of the folks that I were was, was that were in my cohort were working there were people who were had jobs lives families whatever and like how do we thoughtfully adapt the program to meet their needs and yeah. so um I had a wonderful advisor Yolanda Abel shout out to Dr. Abel in the ed department um and she was really good about, you know, staying in touch. Like I set up every other week meetings so that we could stay in touch and I could work through my program. But I know that that was not, you know, that was not something that was built in. It was something that I created, you know, with her. And so what it led me to, once I had my research done and I was, I had come up with this realization that, wait a minute. The students aren't what need to be fixed. The system is what needs to be fixed. Um, I had the opportunity to try it out with my students Mm. at the local campus where I worked. And it worked. My students were, like, remember I said the black and brown male students were struggling. What I found out was here's why they were struggling. They were working extra jobs to make ends meet yeah. and couldn't focus on, because they're, they're all full-time teachers. All of my students are full-time teachers. So here it is, your full-time teacher, very often a brand new full-time teacher. You have family obligations, You ha- and then you're trying to do this extra job, you oh know, mm-hmm. um, or it was that they didn't want to ask for help because Mm. there was nobody at the institution they felt safe enough to come to and say, Hey, I don't understand this concept or, Hey, I don't have enough money to pay my bill. Right. And so what we were able to do was create a very different way of welcoming our students in to the institution before they even showed up. Mm -hmm. We had, opportunities to figure out, like, how we would send them a welcome email that included a, like, a short video to say, when you arrive, this is what I look like, and here's what you can come to me for. Here's how I can help you. Um, And it changed the way that we sought to build relationships with them, right? Like, at orientation, instead of just sitting and chatting with them, we tried to figure out, like, what's your life map? What brought you here? Who are the people in your social circle that can support you when things get hard? And they will, as everyone who's ever gone to grad school knows, right? They will become challenging. How do you manage your time, right? Because if we, you know, it was like, we're finding out like they're trying to do everything and not really skilled on time task management. How do you figure out when you're gonna eat? When you're gonna do laundry? When you're gonna go grocery shopping? Um, and then we also brought in someone who was like a financial specialist to talk to them about what's realistic on this new salary that you have and what may you know, a couple of years down the road, right? Because they're all recent college grads and they're like, I'm moving out of my parents' house. <laughs> do you have enough money to do that? You know, and it was all those things that we had never considered prior That once we started pouring resources into setting up spaces where they were not only comfortable but informed. And we started taking the proactive step instead of them having to reach out to ask for help. You miss a class, someone sends you an email and says, Hey, notice you weren't in class today. How can I help? Is you know, what can I do to help you? Right not not judgmental at all, but just trying to figure out what could we do to bridge the gap between us and the students and it worked on yeah. my local campus. And so, you know, the rest, right? Once you have data and results, like it becomes, you know, something that you can speak to, which led me to the role that I'm in right now.
0: Oh, wow. I love that. Um, <laughs> your story or the story that you shared today really shows some parallels for what you were experiencing and what you were seeing and um, where you landed on the importance of systems change and how it's important to kind of meet people where they are. And I'm curious for your own story and for your experience as a doctoral student or doctoral candidate, what were the systems, things that helped you or where were there areas where you were like, oh, I need to seek a specific mentor, seek specific resources that can help me and my different hats that I'm wearing? Or yeah. Can you tell me more about that?
1: I don't know. Maybe this might not be a great question for me. I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> when I was accepted into the program, I went and I looked at all of the alumni, all the faculty rather, who work in the program. And I hunted for somebody whose topic was as similar to mine as, because I knew I was going to be studying African American and Latinx males. And I found, I went and I researched and I found Dr. April and I was like, ha, she studies the thing that is closest to me. And then I researched her background. She'd gone through Teach for America. I had gone through Teach mm-hmm. for America. She'd been a former teacher. I was a former teacher. And I was like, okay, that's the person that I need mm-hmm. to be my advisor. And so I came in already, like having zoned in on a person that I wanted to have a close relationship with. And when I met with her, I said to her, I'm going to be here for three years and not a day more because (laughs) her program is a three-year program. And we, she said, okay, well, that means you're going to have to work really hard. And, you know, this is what we're going to have to do. And we laid out a plan together. It did take me a little longer than three years, but she was the right person in that she was then able to help me build the right committee, right? Mm -hmm. Like Dr. Rice, Dr. Eric Rice was on my committee. Dr. Camille Bryant was on my committee. So she was able to help me figure out like, here's where my strengths are as a student. Here's where her strengths are as an advisor. And then what did we need to round out? Like whose talents did we need to round out? my committee. Um, And then she was just always honest. And she was really, really good about getting me um, my feedback in a really, you know, tight timeline. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, you know, you hear these horror stories, like you submitted Mm -hmm. and, and you don't get feedback for like three, four months that never, that was never an experience that I had. And so, I I mean, I think the program was set up for our success. You know what I mean? Like it was set up yeah. for us to be successful. Um, I think for me, what I felt like would probably have been better is if I had been able to select my advisor right off the bat. Like if I, you know, um, at the time that I was there, when you come in, you you had like one person who kind of Sherpa'd you through your year one and then you selected your advisor in year two. And I guess that makes sense, right? Like it gives people a chance to experience a couple of different instructors, and then they would choose an advisor. Um, but in my case, I already knew who I wanted, what I I came in focused. I knew yeah. what I wanted, how I wanted it to go, and thank God she was receptive and she was so amazing. I still <laughs> text her and harass her every once in a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, a good advisor and a good mentor is someone that's essential both during a doctoral program, before, after, and all of that, and. Really, the thing that I'm hearing pretty consistently so far is the importance of intentionality or how intentionality has really helped you. Um, And I'm curious kind of, so you've given really good examples of how you've been intentional and how it helped guide your research and what you're doing now. But do you have advice for people who struggle with that or who are in the moment where they're working on their research, um, regardless of their program, and they're looking for their next role, but they don't know how to, how to even pick that or their advisor relationship is okay. Or their, yeah. Do you have advice for someone that's trying to be intentional, but doesn't know how?
1: Yeah. um, I think intentionality starts with understanding your goal, right? Like what is the outcome you're seeking, right? Like, and if you know what the outcome is, then you want to know how is that going to like what exactly am I looking to feel, to experience, to hear, right? Like once you know, and you, it's not just like, you know, like people say, oh, I want a job in academia. Yeah. But how do you want it to feel right? Well, how do you want to be engaged? Where do you want to maybe live? Like, for example, I knew I did not wanna live in the Northeast, that was a no-no because it's cold and I do not like the cold. So a, a role for me needed to be something that was either in a warmer climate or remote, which my role, my role is currently remote. And so it's about narrowing down what are the things that you, you definitely want and then splitting those into what are the negotiables and the non-negotiables, right? Because you're not gonna get everything on the list. But what are the negotiables and the non-negotiables? And then if you don't know anybody who's in that field, use LinkedIn to your advantage. There are tons of people on LinkedIn who post free advice. Like you don't even have to pay them um, and, you know, connect with as many people as you can while you're in school, connect with people who are in fields where you think you want to go. I've done interest meetings for tons of people who think this is the field they want to be in. They hit me up on LinkedIn, like, Hey, I think this is my, what I might want to do. Would you have 10 to 15 minutes to chat with me? Sure. Why not? Not everybody will say yes, but some people will. And you just, you know, you you have to put yourself out there, right? And ask the questions. Um, And once you have figured out, like, what the landscape looks like, for me, I will say it was worth it to invest in a career coach to help me tailor my resume or CV, to tailor my LinkedIn profile to help me to figure out where to look. Um, And that that was super helpful. Now I say all that, and you're probably like, well, you're at the same institution where you were before. Right. Um, But what that intentionality did for me, it raised my profile at that institution. Right. I was doing this work. I found the results and I shared it. I shared it with the influential people. And even before I walked in my graduation, they had set up, time for me to train all of the faculty advisors on the advisement model that I had created. And because I was given that opportunity, I was able to then train more and more. Every summer, I would come in and train people. And so, of course, when a position as dean of student affairs came available, my name was on the top of people's minds, right? And then dean of student affairs turned into vice provost of student affairs, and here I am. Uh-huh. Um, but I, w- I would always say this. People think working hard is the thing that's going to get you noticed, right? Working hard is the thing that's going to get you noticed in year one of your role. Making connections with with people and learning more about how you can advance is what's gonna get your name called in rooms that you have not yet entered, right? Demonstrating strategic thinking, being able to manage, even if you say, I have no direct reports, but you work with people laterally every day. For example, in this podcast, I'm sure you're doing some lateral management, right? Like where you have to work with people from different departments to get it done, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: make connections, right? Build investment, figure out like how, you know, to build relationships with those people and you, you create a reputation for yourself. And then when opportunities come available, people know your work ethic already. They know how you treat them. They know that you're a strategic thinker. They know you're a people manager. They know you are intentional, right, about your work, mm-hmm. and it starts there. Um, yeah. So that would be, you know, some of the advice I would give.
0: I love that. I, I love everything that you said. Admittedly, in the very beginning, my feelings were hurt when you said you didn't want to live in the Northeast, as a person who rides for the Northeast. Um, though you said it was because it's the cold. It's very cold today, so you're right. <laughs> Northeast has its downfalls.
1: <laughs> I will say this: I grew up in Brooklyn. I did my undergrad at Binghamton University. Do you know where Binghamton
0: is? I do. I lived in New York. It's very right. cold there. <laughs> it's
1: very cold there. And then I lived for New- in New Jersey for something like thirty-eight years. I think I, like I, I still wrap every New York team like. <laughs> If the Giants are playing anybody, I'm repping them. The Bills, the Jets, the Yankees, the Mets. I rep New York hard. I just don't want to live there. It's cool. I don't want to be cold.
0: I love, though, that you also, you really highlighted the importance of initiative as well, where it's resources can exist in abundance, but you still have to go and get them in some way, shape or form. Um, And Of course, it's important to recognize there's differences in personality and different styles and approach. But you mentioned you got a career coach to help you fine tune things. Or for some people, it's reaching across laterally instead of if you don't have a higher up that you even are connected to or you even have direct report to right now. And it's maybe even about thinking about for someone, for the person in particular, what makes most sense for them to do, rather than going, oh, Lois likes talking to people. Let me do Lois's approach of talking to people, when in fact, that is not natural (laughs) to that person. So I love that you listed out so many possibilities that are still really effective ways to grow professionally when you're trying to figure out your path after doctoral studies. Um, Yeah.
1: I will say this. I am a dedicated introvert. (laughs) If you want me to shrivel up and die, tell me I have to go to a networking event. (laughs) I hate like having to do the small talk and talk about myself. I am terrible, terrible, terrible at marketing myself. But what I'm better at is on LinkedIn, connecting with people, asking questions, because it's it's safer. And for you know, me as an introvert, I can engage when I want, I can disengage when I don't want with without fear of judgment. And so I love that you named that it has to be authentic to who you are. Authenticity is really important. People can pick up on it very quickly when you're not being authentic. And they're less inclined to want to invest in you if you're not being authentic. And so that's why, like I say, like with lateral management, if right now, you, you don't have a person that is a higher up or a lateral management is a really good way to start practicing those skills because there anytime you're working on a project with anybody, there are bound to be times when it becomes a challenge for whatever reason. But if you are super thoughtful about how you approach that challenge, right? You can turn that challenge into an opportunity. And what you're really looking for in any space is sponsors, right? People who are going to say your name, right? Attached to good things and in rooms where you don't yet have access. The other side of that is once you get there, you might want to start doing that for some people too, right? Like it's not just about getting there. It's like, how do you then do that for people? One easy way to do that. Is like when you're working on a project, if somebody helped you to think through something, say that. Right. Like, you know, Lois and I were talking the other day and she had this really great idea to do blah, 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 blah. And now you have become the person that is mentioning someone's name in a room that they did not have access to.
0: Yeah. Giving people credit is it's it's important. It's very important. Um, So I have two more questions for you, if that's okay. Um, so the first is, um, it's on the, it's on the note of advice. So I am curious about the best career advice that you've ever received and that it could be more than one thing, but what rises to the top for you?
1: I think it was that thing, right? That working hard is only going to get you so far, right? Um, because working hard, when you work hard in year one, you've set the bar now for what the expectation is for you, right? Um, and so that was the best piece of advice I'd ever gotten. And I'll tell you why. Um, I was working for a manager um, and I there were things that I knew how to do that he didn't know how to do. So I would just do them. I would just take initiative and do them. And one day we were doing my performance review and he gave me a review that I didn't agree with and he said he gave me that rating on um Innovation I forget what it was but he said you don't ask me for more to do and I was like I was crest like my face fell because I'm I'm like I ask you for more to do but I just go in and do it. Like, how do you not see that? And what I named for him is that culturally I'm, I'm from the Caribbean, I'm Guyanese and culturally for me, it felt odd to go to my manager and say, Hey, I want to do more of what you do. Right. It felt weird. It did not feel natural to me. Yeah. And so I was like, what you saw as a negative was definitely me showing a sign of respect. So no one ever gave me this advice, but it's advice that I would give people. Understand the cultural nuances of the folks you're working with, whether it's an upwards relationship or downwards lateral, understand the cultural nuances because you may be completely missing or totally misinterpreting things that they're doing that would allow you to see them in a different light, right? And once I said that to him and I was able to point out, like, I do this and I do that and I do that. I don't ask, but I do it, right? And he apologized and he was able to see it from a different light, but it was so heartbreaking for me to hear that, that I, like me, of all people, I'm like, sir, of course I take initiative. I just don't ask you because it felt uncomfortable. And so I think understanding cultural nuance is is the big piece of advice. No one's ever given it to me, but I've learned it over time that it is so important. For a simple one, generational cultures, right? For me, when I am in meetings and people keep their cameras off, it drives me to drink, but I get it. I am from a completely different generation than, you know, most of the people I manage. And for them, it's like Zoom fatigue. Like, I want to talk to you, but I don't want my background to show, or, you know, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with you seeing what's inside my house. And so I had to learn to get over myself, right? Like, because to me, it felt rude. Like, you wouldn't mute your face in public. Like, how are you muting your face on Zoom? But I like, I still don't all the way get it, but I respect it. Right. And so it's that thing of understanding, not just seeing things from your limited perspective and trying to expand your thought process to understand why someone is doing the thing or what are they bringing to the table that you may be totally missing.
0: Yeah, that's always a good reminder. And it's We're interacting with someone every single day, and we all have our own lived experiences that are informing our every next action. So it's an important bit of advice and an important thing to take with us. So I have one more question for you, and it is what inspires you right now?
1: Jen, I don't know what they're called. What are the little kids called now, like the 12-year-olds and the 10-year-olds?
0: I don't know that I'm the one for this question. I think they're gen alpha or maybe maybe the, they're, maybe gen, maybe I don't know what alpha. they're <laughs>
1: but they are so dope right now. Like <laughs> I have a niece who is 12, who has conversations like really comprehensive conversations with me about climate change, about the environment, about social justice. And, <laughs> um, you know, for her, using they them is just natural and non-binary is a part of her lexicon. I am so impressed by that, right? Like they are poised, right, to be the next generation of leaders. And I see it every day in the kids that I interact with because they are they're exposed in some bad ways, but in a lot of good ways to so much more. Than, you know, the generations before them ever were. And they're taking that information and they're distilling it in a really positive way. And they're walking out as like these social justice warriors who are like, oh, no. So yeah, they, you know, they, them is not a thing. Like, why are you so upset about that? It's just the way someone chooses to express themselves. Why can't you understand that? And I'm just like, you're 12, but teach me. I love it. And they, I'm so excited by them right now. I'm so excited by their promise. And so that's, what's inspiring me because I'm teach, I'm, I don't teach anymore, but I'm working with, I'm supporting the teachers. We're teaching them. and. I'm like, we have to get it right because they're so dope and they're ready. They are so ready to learn and to, you know, take on more leadership from the ground up. Um, You know, they participated in a a virtual protest um, when the, the Supreme Court ruling came out on Roe v. Wade. They participated in like on these games that they play on these platforms and I was just they're so engaged and I am so inspired by them I am so inspired by them I think they're gonna be I think I think I'll feel safe getting old because I'm like by the time I get old they'll be in charge and they'll be all right
0: really- oh that's really <laughs> that's really sweet and it's it's yeah, they have a lot of information and they know how to use it, which is interesting, but it's also inspiring for sure. I think that for certain generations that were a little before them, it was like new. So it was also a little clunky. So it's nice that they've been able to kind of deal with the refined the refined stuff and it'll be exciting to see what they do with it. And also just the the beauty of youth and this is things that are still told to me that you don't know you're not really as jaded you're not you're just excited by all of the possibilities and you're eternally optimistic which is a very good thing I think so yeah inspiration by our youth I love that yeah
1: I mean, look at what Greta Thunberg is doing, you know, like <laughs> she's made true. the world sit up and take notice. Like and this, this, these kids, they're, they're ready. They are ready. They're, they're equipped. And I think that's the piece, right? Like, like they are equipped and just making sure that in the education system for the teachers that I touch, that we're doing our part to keep them equipped and to, you know, help them get there.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to chat with me. I loved hearing a bit about your story and how you thought through your doctoral studies and about what's inspiring you and all the advice you shared today. So thank you so much.
1: You are most welcome, Lois. It was lovely meeting you. And I, I mean, some of these questions I have not pondered in a while. So it was really good to, you know, on my first day of break to reset and get my mind back to what inspires me.